This is your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, uh, and this week, President Obama gave what was billed as a major foreign policy address in a commencement speech to West Point graduates. I caught up with Matt Duss of the Center for American Progress, who helps put this speech in context, helps explain what Obama got right, uh, what he might have missed, what was new about this speech, what wasn't new about this speech, and how this speech might fit into Obama's overall foreign policy legacy. Quick reminder, you can subscribe to Global Dispatches on iTunes and find it wherever podcasts are available. Here it is, my conversation with Matt Duss of the Center for American Progress. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. So why do you think uh, Obama decided to give this speech now? Is it sort of mostly in response to criticisms of being somehow weak or ineffective on Russia and, and the Ukraine issue? Well, I think that's definitely part of it. I think but there's a broader critique, you know, that that, that his, his, you know, his opponents and, and critics have been making about, you know, exactly as you said, ineffective, feckless is this word that's thrown around all the time. Um, basically that he's, you know, he's not responsibly or effectively deploying American power to solve, you know, all of these problems that are going on. Um, so he felt the need, obviously, to kind of get up there and, you know, articulate once again his view of American power, how it, how it can be used when it's effectively used and when it can't be used so or when it's less effective uh, so this isn't obama's first big foreign policy speech there have been a few of these uh what stood out or differentiated this one from the others if if anything you know i have a very hard time saying what that was i'm actually kind of surprised at how much of you know the response and the coverage of this speech has you know presented it as though he's articulating this new foreign policy doctrine. And there is very little new, and if anything new, that I saw it. And I mean, these are ideas that he has explained um, since he was a candidate. Um, you know, a kind of pragmatic approach to to the world's problems, a recognition of the limits of American power, even but you know, while still recognizing that America has considerable power to affect and shape change uh, around the world. World, but you know, an understanding that you know different problems require different solutions. That there are there are a whole range of tools in the United States um, toolbox, diplomatic, economic, and yes, military, uh, when necessary. But you know that there's that it takes you know a very nuanced approach to, to know when and how the United States can actually create certain outcomes. It's so to the extent there was something new in the speech, though um, there was this rollout, uh, this announcement of a five billion dollar counterterrorism package, the bulk of which it would seem is going to the Sahel, uh, you know, to fight yeah. uh, 
you know, to, to provide counterterrorism training to uh, the Malian army, to Nigeria, to you know that region, which is you know now suddenly thrust in the news because of the bring back our girls and the Boko Haram attacks. Right. Uh, but it seems like as if this is you know not an insignificant shift towards the Sahel. I mean, do you perceive that to be anything that will have so, you know any long-lasting consequences or, or impact? You know, I think that's fair. I mean, I think just in terms of, you know, kind of elevating this region as something, okay, now this is definitely on our radar. It's a a region we are going to talk about much more from now on. I I think that's probably correct. Um, but still, it was more more of kind of like drawing this region into the, you know, attaching that to the broader North Africa, Middle East region in terms of, you know, we need to include this 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 part of, of Africa as well when we're talking about some of the security challenges that emanate from this region. Um, another thing that was seemingly conspicuously absent from this speech was a clear articulation of any sort of strategy on Syria. Other than you know a uh, another reiteration that they're going to stay out unless what you know Obama said the core national security interests are involved. Um, I guess how did you perceive his comments on Syria, and where do you think the administration is is sort of drawing the line, or where do you think they're they're going on Syria? Well, no, I think their strategy on Syria is let's just contain the fallout from Syria as best we can. I mean, I know that's that's not that doesn't satisfy a lot of people, um, but all you know when you actually look at you know what opportunities the United States has to create and shape outcomes inside Syria. I mean, in my view, they're very limited. I know a lot of people disagree. I, I think I've heard some various arguments. You know, a lot of people think we should do more to vet and arm rebel forces inside the country. But basically, the strategy right now, as he said yesterday, is to help uh, Syria's neighbors deal with the flows of refugees, deal with possible problems of extremism in their own countries, um, and that you know that is just a, that's a strategy of, of containment. Uh, so what what did he miss? I mean, this was this was billed as a big foreign policy speech, but there were a few items left off the agenda. Uh, what do you think he he should have spoken about, or or he didn't speak about, and why? Well, I found the the complete lack of mention of the Israeli Palestinian talks to be a little odd. Um, you know, less than a year ago, last um, you know at the at the UN last year. He, you know, identified the Israeli-Palestinian peace talks along with the Iranian nuclear issue as one of his two main priorities in the region. Um, this is something, you know, he's been involved with since he, you know, the first week of his presidency. Um, and obviously, Secretary of, Care, Secretary of State Kerry has been, you know, deeply involved um, over the past nine months at trying to to get somewhere um, uh, in these talks. The talks have now broken down; they're now stalled. Um, and, you know, the, the the view of the administration, what they've said is that, you know, we're going to take a step back from this and let the two sides sort of consider their options, stew in their juices is the, is the line that they use. But, you know, first of all, to mention nothing about this, given, you know, the, the kind of emphasis they've placed on this in the past and the recent past, given the amount of energy, the amount of blood, sweat, and tears that, that Kerry has put into this, the amount of time that, that Obama's own Secretary of State has committed to this, it seems to be very odd not to even give it, you know, at least a throwaway sense or two. And if the goal is to kind of let the sides, you know, 
stew in their juices and consider the cost of what's coming. It's unclear to me that there are, you know, particularly for the Israelis, that there are actually any costs right now. So I think this the strategy, I think it's wise, first of all, I should say, I think it's wise to probably take a pause and consider options for the U.S. as well as for the Israelis, you know, what, you know, what, the, what, the, what the next step forward is. But that doesn't mean completely ignoring it, um, especially in a, in, a, in a major foreign policy speech like this. And I mean, one final point on that, I mean, they were asked about this after the speech, and administration officials kind of defended the, the, the lack of mention of the, of, the, of the peace process by saying, well, we wanted to focus on security issues. Well, you had the two former heads of CENTCOM, the Central Command, this is the, the command, you know, that deals with U.S. military forces in the Middle East, the most, the two recent leaders, Petraeus and Mattis, as well as previous CENTCOM commanders who've constantly stressed that this, this, you know, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is a security issue for the United States. It creates security costs for the United States. So then to turn around and say, well, we don't include that in the basket of security issues seems, you know, very off to me. And it seems also a reversal of Obama's old rhetoric, too, on, on the issue in which, you know, he, I think, has identified festering conflicts, the festering Arab-Israeli conflict as a key source of instability uh, and a security threat to the United States to the extent that it inflames opinion against the United States, right? Right. I mean, I mean, it's important to put it in context. You know, it's not, I think, a lot of people kind of overemphasize, you know, the, you know, overemphasize the impact of the conflict. Clearly, it's a problem. Clearly, it creates instability. Clearly, it's a source of, you know, anti-Americanism. Um, it's one of a number of, of conflicts in, in, uh, in the region. But it is one that sort of cuts across, um, you know, and, and is deployed by extremists all over the region. Well, so... To the extent that this foreign policy speech, you know, we're two years out to the end of the presidency, can be, you know, maybe setting some guideposts for what uh, his foreign policy legacy might be, it would seem that, um, you know, the the two big ones are obviously ending the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. uh, And another huge foreign policy legacy would be this detente with Iran, if that deal could be worked Mm -hmm. out. Uh, But one... One thing that probably won't happen, uh, disappointingly, of course, is, is uh, the uh, peace between Israel and Palestine, right? I mean, he, him leaving that out of the speech seems to indicate that he wants to down or de-emphasize uh, uh, the Arab-Israeli conflict as part of you know, his package of you know, foreign policy issues that he's leaving the world. Yeah, it's hard not to come away with that impression. And I, I think that would be uh, an enormous mistake. I think his analysis is that it's, you know, it's it's difficult in and of itself, but it's also very politically costly domestically. Um, and that, you know, I understand that analysis. I, I don't quite agree with it. I think it's, it's something that could be managed domestically. And I also think the benefits of it in the region would be considerable. But going back to the Iran issue, yeah, I was glad to see a robust defense of his Iran policy. Frankly, I think it's a successful policy. It's one that deserves defending. I wish he would get out there and defend it more. Um, but, you know, the Iran, you know, his Iran policy is one that he argued for and defended, you know, even as a candidate, even against his own Democratic primary candidate, as you might remember, in 2007 and 2008, Hillary Clinton, who, you know, was among those criticizing him for his offer to just sit down and talk with, with anyone, um, with any of our enemies. I mean, I, and I think that policy has turned out to be a successful one by, by extending his hand to the Iranian regime, um, you know, by demonstrating that United, the United States is not afraid to talk to anyone precisely because we are powerful 
um, he's been able to show Iranians themselves and you know the rest of the world uh, that the United States is not the problem here. He's helped to forge a very, very strong international coalition to pressure Iran with economic sanctions. And we're in a situation right now where this has, you know, this all of this has resulted in in talks. You know, there's no guarantee of success, as he recognized, but we're we're pretty close to what I think will be a pretty historic um, agreement um, on Iran's nuclear program and one that could have very positive implications both for the U.S.-Iran, a possible detente, I don't want to use that word too, too carelessly, but a possible detente between the U.S. and Iran, a possible lessening of tensions after 30 years of hostility, um, and could also have positive impact across the region. Uh, and, and on this issue of uh, you know Obama coming in promising or, or pledging that he would speak pretty much with anyone, um, you know he'll extend their hand if they'll unclench their fist. I think was his uh, term. Right, phrase. that was in the inaugural speech. In, so one example that he cited of that was Burma, um, which you know has um, undergone this pretty impressive and quick political transformation, which he touted in the speech as as an example mm-hmm. of this policy done right. But something that was so disappointing to me and and to human rights activists I know was his failure to recognize um, that, you know, part of this uh, political opening has also been accompanied by this really oppressive crackdown on the Rohingya population in uh, Burma, you know, almost like a near genocide policy that the – Uh, government has undertaken and the fact that he didn't even you know slip in a little line about concerns for human rights seems you know is is actually sort of deeply deeply disappointing and that kind of brings me around to this kind of general critique i think mostly on the left uh, of the obama administration that it's um kind of old school realist uh in um sacrifice of human rights i'm wondering to the extent of which you buy that Critique and whether or not um, anything in the speech might have um, lessened your concerns. You know, I, I wouldn't. I, I think there is something to it. Um, I wouldn't say I totally disagree with it. Uh, I mean, first on Burma, I totally agree with what you're saying. I mean, and, and frankly, I think it would have been entirely in keeping with his very nuanced understanding and kind of articulation of how these processes work, how these transitions work, um, to recognize that, yes, it's a good thing that this government is now has become more democratic. It's changing, but there are costs and there are things we need to watch out for as part of this transition. So I did find it odd and regrettable that he didn't even at least mention that. Um, but more broadly, I would say, yeah, I mean, I, when I look at his, I think there was, I think we can now recognize that when he came into office, there was a, a kind of broad theory of we need to kind of turn the page on the Bush administration. And part of that was grouping, you know, the Bush administration's emphasis on democracy promotion and human rights um, and saying, okay, we're just going to put that aside for the moment. Now, we can definitely disagree, and I think you, well, I think you and I would probably agree on, you know, the you know focusing on human rights as as you know a priority in American foreign policy, but disagreeing with some of the policies that the Bush administration undertook to sort of implement that or encourage it. But I think 
there has been a, a, a de-emphasis of those things, and I, and, and I regret that. I mean, I look at the Obama administration's policies in the Middle East, particularly with regard to Egypt, which I think is probably the best example here. Um, after you know, recognizing what was happening in Egypt very early on, um, calling for Mubarak to step down in January of, of, of 2011, and getting a lot of criticism for it, um, I think that was the right decision. I think Obama was was correct to recognize as early as he did the momentous, you know, how, how momentous what was happening in Egypt was. But now to really kind of retreat back into this classic, well, we're going to still deal with this government uh, because we have common security interests and we're not really going to pressure them too hard or create any costs or real disincentives for their, their you know, undemocratic behavior. That's you know that that's 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 a problem. I'm just I'm not sure what the answer is. You know, I mean, I think you can look at it and say, all right, well, what they're doing is they are saying, okay, we are going to have a minimum level of contact. We want to try and create incentives for better behavior under, and making these governments understand that they can have a better, more robust, more profitable relationship with the United States if they move in a more democratic direction. But, you know, designing a policy that kind of creates those incentives is, is difficult. Uh, well, with that, Matt, thanks so much for speaking with me. Happy to. Thank you, everyone, for listening. I'll be back next Monday with a conversation with Luis Arbour, the head of the International Crisis Group and a longtime U.N. human rights defender. Until then, uh, subscribe to the podcast, and we'll see you later. Bye.